Hey, pull up a chair. Attacks on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. In one voice, our nation must condemn racism, bigotry, and white supremacy. These sinister ideologies must be defeated. Hate has no place in America. Hatred warps the mind, ravages the heart, and devours the soul. That was the president of the United States. We've just all shared the tragedy of these mass shootings in Dayton, Ohio, and El Paso, Texas. Uh, Axe, you've been in the White House during moments of national tragedy. What comes to mind for you? Well, first of all, uh, this is a this is such an essential role, and I've always wondered about this with Donald Trump. What would happen in moments like this? This is an essential role of the president. I mean, when you're in the White House and something like this happens, the first thing you know is you need to minister to the country. You need to speak to people who are shaken, grief-stricken, uh, and and play a kind of uh, 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 ministerial role uh, here. And they tried to do that with these remarks. You could hear that. Uh, and he did his little uh, riff about hate has no place, hate this, hate that. Um, what he didn't say is, but hate sure motivates the base. And that's the fundamental problem that they have. He is not positioned to be the healer. He's doing the things that you would do. You would go to the cities where these tragedies happen. You would try and offer solace uh, to the victims. But how do you go, as he is today, to El Paso and offer solace to people who have heard you? He was just in El Paso a few months ago, uh, demonizing immigrants, calling the city one of the unsafest cities. It is one of the safest cities. Uh, and creating the kind of stereotype that is central to his political project. So the fundamental tension of the Trump presidency has all come to the fore here. He's trying to do what presidents are expected to do, but it just doesn't come naturally and flies in the face of his fundamental political strategy. Yeah, I think the staff is trying to follow the rule book, but he can't do it because he doesn't see the presidency that way. Everything to him is transactional and narcissistic. His people get rewarded no matter who they are or what they do. The opponent uh, gets vilified. When the president of the United States with the most powerful pulpit in the world says invasion, that, that is not a small term And again and again so, and again and in 2000 2000- – uh, targeted digital ads to his supporters, uh, exhorting them to storm the ramparts. We saw it last uh, fall at the, in the lead up to the um, to the midterm elections. The caravan is coming, and what happened after that? We saw the shooting in in Pittsburgh uh, at the synagogue, in which once again the shooter cited this incursion of immigrants at the border, the this invasion of immigrants as a motivation for his shooting. What was missing, Mike, from his statement, and I don't think he's capable of it, and I don't think any of his supporters will allow uh, for it, is that the President of the United States does bear some responsibility uh, for this. And if he could in any way and you know it's not within his range. If he could in any way uh, say, you know what, we all have to tone down our rhetoric and I'm going to take that to heart, imagine what an impact that would have. It, it, 
it it is not within his range to do that. No, it, it's totally not. He is a prisoner of all his character defects. His biggest problem, and I just don't think it's teachable to him, is that, as you know, in the American system, the president is not only the head of the government, it's the head of state, like the Queen of right. England. And so you have two jobs. One, you get to fight over the price of cheese every day and the, you know, the budget and all that. But you also are the 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 head of state. So you you are supposed to protect and represent the values of our democracy and all this stuff. He sees it through a small prism of him and transactionalism. So he he's not built for it. So here then we have what we had, which is the staff will get somebody to write a speech. He'll read it off a teleprompter. Very few people will believe it because one is more eloquent than he is and everybody knows his authentic voice or the unfiltered tweets where most of the trouble occurs. Yeah, he's a self-hating as hater. He did, <laughs> as he did, he'll revert to a bad tweet after he struggles through the language about uh, hatred and, and all the poetry that somebody writes for him. So it's just it's dysfunctional on a core level. And I think the political question is, are we going to reach a tipping point where people have just had it with this with a president, regardless of ideology, who just can't be a president? Yeah, it's crass to but it's what we're, we we do is we, we, we need to evaluate uh, what impact this might have. Uh, I, I feel so deeply for the victims and their families, and I don't want to in any way cheapen their uh, uh, cheapen the moment by by talking about politics. But it does raise the question: Is it a tipping point? Are there voters who are going to decide this next election, and just as they decided the midterm elections, who decide that whatever his positions are on issues, this element of Donald Trump is not something they can tolerate. And, uh, you know, Joe Biden spoke to that moment uh, on Monday night, rarely does TV interviews, went out and did one on Monday night. And this is what he had to say about Trump in this moment. Everybody knows who Donald Trump is. We've got to let them know who we are, man. Even his supporters know who he is. They have no illusions about the basic fundamental character traits. Some, I think sometimes he thinks that... Uh, when we talk about this thing, that we talk about other people like we're being suckers, you know, like we're not, take care of yourself. I mean, I, 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 I don't know. I don't, we may let them know that, uh, you know, we choose hope over fear, you know? Mm. Unity over division. And maybe most importantly, uh, truth over lies. And that, that, Fundamentally, is the argument that Joe Biden's making in this election. He started with ad, ads about a, a video about Charlottesville and about the character of the country. Cory Booker's making a similar appeal today at the uh, Mother Emanuel Church in South Carolina. Biden is speaking in Iowa. This raises a question. They're going to South Carolina, they're going to Iowa, they're going to early primary states. Is there a danger that Democrats could actually overplay this or uh, politicize it in a way that uh, gives uh, Trump and his supporters a kind of escape valve? 
It could. It could. And it's tragic we have to say that, but the Trump is so unpopular in the country, but particularly in the Democrat electorate, it, it's tempting in the short term to have an auction to who can vilify the president the most. But his numbers are kind of baked in, and you, you can kind of leave that to him. He's going to keep being Donald Trump, and that means he'll keep getting himself in trouble. He'll keep well, being tone Well, to deaf. your point, he, he – uh before he ever got to Dayton and El Paso, he had comments uh, this morning at a uh, you know uh, before he was leaving for the trip, and he just could not he could not help himself. No, I don't blame Elizabeth Warren, and I don't blame Bernie Sanders in the case of Ohio, and I don't blame anybody. I, I blame these are sick people. Yeah, so, he's doing the old George Lakoff thing. Don't think of an elephant. Yeah, yeah. Well. Well, you better explain that there for Well, people. he's a linguist and a scientist. Yeah, right. He's mm-hmm. a leftist, but he wrote a pretty good book called Don't Think of an Elephant. And it's all about how when you communicate, uh, there's a subtext that can kind of come through and the president's the king of that. I'm not saying that there are communists who are going to confiscate your house. But he's also um, saying something else, Mike. He's saying this is there. there's an equivalence between what happened in Dayton and what happened in El Paso. Exactly. In El Paso, the shooter, moments before he, he slaughtered all those people, issued a manifesto and basically repeated the kind of screeds that we've heard from the president of the United States again and again and again. There's no indication that this Dayton shooting was motivated by uh, the words of Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. It's also, un, you know, I, I'm sensitive on this issue of mental health. Clearly, the shooter in Dayton, uh, you know, had some w- was a deeply disturbed person. I think we've seen enough to understand that. Uh, the shooter down in Texas was a white supremacist who was acting on uh, what he thought was a mission. And yep. the president cannot... He just cannot bring himself to reel it back in. You know, there there is just the responsibility gene just just isn't there. And uh, so you're right. I think that uh, the fundamental problem is uh, his words uh, off a prompter don't match his his thought process and his Twitter feed and the offhanded comments that don't come off a teleprompter and they completely obviate the the words that his staff wrote for him that he spoke uh, as president of the United States. Yeah, there's no fixing Trump. He's unfit. He's always been unfit. He's proven he's unfit. And so if I were a Democrat thinking about beating him, this would remind me of how high a cause that is, and it would turn me into a ruthless pragmatist about who we nominate. Why take risk? He's got to go. There was one other thing I wanted to listen to. Um, Beto O'Rourke... El Paso is his home community, um, and he clearly, and I think very genuinely, feels passionately about this and about what has been done to the country in terms of polarization. Uh, but he, he kind of, uh, he, he um, I don't know if you'd say lost it, but he made his views very clear in an interaction with reporters. Is there anything in your mind that the president can do now to make this any better? Uh, what do you think? Um, you know that he's been saying he's, he's been calling Mexican immigrants rapists and criminals um, I, I don't know like members of the press what the okay. hold on a second you know I, 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 it's, it's these um, it's these questions that you know the answers to I mean connect the dots about what he's been doing in this country 
Um, he's not tolerating racism. He is promoting racism. He's not tolerating violence. He's inciting racism and violence in this country. So, um, you know, I, I just, I, I don't know what kind of question that is. So I'll be interested to hear, you know, um, I, I completely see where uh, he's coming from here. And, you know, I also understand that in this moment, why he felt as strongly as he did and expressed himself as strongly as he did. It'd be interesting to see, uh, and I think he would have done that whether or not he was running for president, but it'll be interesting to see how people react to um, to that. Well, he's channeling an outrage that I think is real in the country, that we have a political system that gives people squabbling and wordplay, but not any kind of results. So that's part of the anger that's been going on for a while that even in some ways fueled Trump. I I don't know whether it'll help his campaign. I don't think it's cynical. I think he believes every word of it. I think he felt it deeply. I mean, I think if this were... You know, if this domestic terrorism was done by a foreign actor, if this was Hamas, we'd have carriers heading to the Gulf right now. Americans are getting slaughtered. So I, I think the country's angry about it. And whether or not that'll turn into a candidacy for him, because I think every every Democrat is going to have that reaction, and a lot of Republicans are too. Um, but I thought it was genuine, and it um, it was him at his best. He, he like Biden, have he has a quality of empathy. Yeah. that I think is important. Uh, Biden has that quality, obviously, because of the grief uh, that he himself has gone through. And I think that's a major uh, strength of his candidacy. All of that quality of Biden was on display in that interview uh, Monday night. Uh, and Anderson Cooper asked him what he would tell uh, those people who are going through grief that, sadly, he has known. At a moment, there will come a time when you think of the person you lost, it takes a long while. But you get a smile before you get a tear. Hmm. And um, that's when you know you're going to make it. Powerful. Powerful. Yeah, Biden, you know, Biden understands what a president should do. And he's all heart. And uh, we're early, but as this Democratic nomination process unfolds, if life imitates art, I can see Elizabeth Warren, who's cerebral, a fighter. There's a tinge of angry to her, the race kind of naturally developing into contrast between that and Joe Biden on the other side, who's heart and twinkle in the eye and communitarian and not really a conflict fighting politician, more of a reassuring one. That natural style contrast, which posts up against Trump in interesting ways, could start to organize the Democratic race. We'll find out. That said, guns are an issue. Now here, Murphy is a guy who knows something about the politics of guns. Steve Israel was probably the leading proponent in Congress uh, for gun control in his 16 years there. And uh, as he's written about uh, in his book, his novel, Big Guns, and in, in an op-ed piece uh, the other day, didn't get very far. Steve, good to, uh, good to be with you. It's great to be with both of you guys. Sorry about the topic, which we seem to yeah. revisit more and more these days, but you uh, you're, you were very clear in your op-ed in the uh, USA Today after these uh, these these mass murders in the over the weekend that you don't have much hope, despite all of this talk, that Congress will actually do anything. 
Well, I, I wish I had more hope, but my own experience uh, in 16 years in Congress uh, is that uh, there are just too many of my former colleagues who fear uh, not surviving uh, the next election. There are consensus issues, um, universal background checks, banning cop-killing bullets, no-fly, no-buy, which means if you're deemed too dangerous to get in an airplane, you shouldn't be able to easily acquire a weapon. Uh, and, you know, I was on the Appropriations Committee where we were trying to accomplish these things, and every time we tried, they were defeated. Now, m most people know this, but what they don't know is after those votes, I get on the members-only elevator, which is kind of a sanctuary because there's no press, no constituents, no tourists. And a lot of my colleagues who voted against these things bemoaned the fact that they had to vote no when they really wanted to vote yes. And when I would ask them why, they would be very blunt. They'd say, I can't go home to my district and deal with pro-gun voters with a weak voting record. Uh, and so I've got to just maintain this position. Now, you, you yeah, that, go ahead, Mike. That's, no, the big question to me now, because we've all dealt with kind of that stalemate you're describing where Republicans are afraid of the NRA voters in the primary, Midwestern and Southern Democrats and swing districts are yeah. afraid. Uh, has it changed, though, or could it be changing? Because I think the Senate is going to do a red flag thing, and the House has already done stronger background checks. They have to go to conference. The country's opinion seems to be boiling over. You know, could we be at a watershed where that impasse gets broken, at least on the stuff that all the polling says everybody agrees on, like background checks? Well, you're absolutely right in terms of the polling. Uh, last polls I've seen, you know, upwards of uh, 80 to 85 percent of Americans support red flag laws, uh, laws and uh, strengthened background checks. And I, I, I hope we're at a tipping point, but I have to be honest. I thought that we were at a tipping point when a bunch of elementary school students were killed uh, in Newtown, uh, Connecticut. And so I keep assuming that we're at a tipping point, and now finally Congress is going to do something. Uh, and they find a way out of these things. Um, the, the real tragedy of this is, Michael, exactly what you said, that the majority of members of Congress, in my view, and the majority of the American people support these common sense, common ground issues. It's just going to take Democrats and Republicans to go back home uh, and, and face down a potential primary uh, or face down opposition from, uh, from pro-gun voters. And just one other thing on this topic, and you guys know this better than anybody uh, that I know, it's all about voter intensity. So, you know, pro-gun voters, my experience is, having chaired the Democrat Congressional Campaign Committee, if you are against any compromise on guns, then that is the one issue you're voting on. And if your member of Congress disappoints you, you don't forgive that member of Congress. But if you are for these things, if you're a voter who is for these things, and your member of Congress disappoints you, but is with you on other things, you'll forgive your member of Congress. Yeah. So the intensity has to increase among voters who want something done. Murphy, did you do, uh, when, you were in your, when you were doing your evil ways over there, uh, <laughs> did you do pro-gun ads? Um, I'm trying to remember, you know, in the 90s, Clinton, there was a temporary assault weapon ban. Yeah, for 10 and years. And that was the big Democratic issue, particularly in states that were more gun control friendly. I remember in New Jersey on the Whitman race, a lot of ads attacking her for not being for enough of an assault weapon ban. I mean, I think part of what happened back then, and I probably did ads uh, in various Senate campaigns uh, Clinton, Clinton thought stuff. he lost he lost the Congress on that on issue. 94. Yeah. Yeah. And there's on some, there's some 
evidence. But, you know, the thing about background checks, why I think it could be the camel's nose under the tent, is I've seen polling even among NRA rank and file members overwhelmingly in support of it. And the NRA is weakened right, right now. They're, they're in many ways a business about raising money and enriching some of the people around it. And they're fighting each other over that money now. So if there's ever a window... Um, to get a more comprehensive background check thing done, it might be now. Now, that said, it doesn't solve all the problems. But, um, but you, I can see a deal to at least make a step forward in the next two months. Do uh, uh, Steve, can't, wouldn't Donald Trump provide cover if he were willing to embrace, say, the Toomey Mansion background check bill in the Senate? Well, I mean, couldn't he give yeah. them all cover? Yeah. He could. And I think a lot of uh, my former colleagues who I've talked to over the past several days, uh, part of their calculation is, I don't want to go out on a limb and support background checks and then get a nasty tweet from Trump that I'm anti-gun. Right. Uh, and so the one person who is just indispensable in getting us to some compromise uh, on uh, background checks is the president of the United States. If he were to say that he's for it, uh, I think he'll bring a lot of Republicans with him. By the way, you know, he did say that he was considering it right after the shootings uh, and then kind of backed off. After the last set of shootings. Yes, correct. Yeah. And he said, no, he taunted, career, he taunted Toomey and Manchin and said they were afraid of the uh, the NRA. And then he met with the NRA the day after and he completely pulled his horns. And, and sadly, we but, should note that in his remarks the other day uh, uh, about the shootings, he did not include guns uh, or any kind of gun control measures uh, as part of the remedy. But earlier in his career, Trump used to be for pretty strong gun control. So he's the most pliable (laughs) guy ever. And I think if Pat Toomey, who's kind of the Senate leader on this, lock himself in the elevator with the Cory Gardners uh, and the Olympia Snows and others who do come from states with some gun support. Susan Collins, Olymp- Olympia checks. wouldn't do them much good. Much good oh, yeah. Anymore. No, no. Sorry. I'm having a flashback to the gun battles of, of yesteryear. But my point being, I worked the Toomey race. We did the Bloomberg IE. And what saved Toomey was his position standing up to the NRA in the Philly suburbs. That was clearly the thing that gave him the margin. He has a good story to tell his colleagues about that issue. So, Steve, if you were advising Trump and you're one of the shrewdest political guys who ever passed through that Congress. If you were advising Trump, what would you tell him on this? Uh, I would tell him it's an absolute political win for him uh, to get some background checks passed by uh, the Senate, get it into conference, sign the bill, and here's why. Uh, I agree with Charlie Cook's assessment of the state of the presidential race. 35% of the electorate is locked in uh, for Trump, about 45% locked in against him. It's the 20% in the balance that uh, will decide this election. Uh, And these are generally moderate, independent voters. He needs to get a a decent vote share from that 20%. Being able to get something done where you've got 80 to 90% agreement by those voters, I think is a big electoral win uh, for him. Having said that, I don't advise him, and if I did, I don't think he would take my advice. No, although, and he's been very base-oriented. Whoever's whispering in his ear uh, constantly tugs him back to the base. I, I agree with you. I, you know, it, it seems pretty clear that his supporters are going to stick with him. Uh, this yeah. is if, if ever he was going to take a risk, this is where it should be. And the guy who, hope, who should hope he does is Kevin McCarthy. Uh, because uh, he has no chance to win any of these suburban seats back mm-hmm. if this issue uh, is unaddressed. Real quick, uh, 
since we have you on the issue of the House, a majority of members now support impeachment. You were very close and continue to be close to Speaker Pelosi. She is not uh, mm-hmm. in the impeachment camp. What do you? What's your sense of this issue? And can she resist? Can she run the clock out? Should she run the clock out uh, on this issue? Well, you know, of course, she makes her assessments based in real time uh, and a variety of factors. She wants to know how a decision is going to affect not just the presidential election, but retaining the Democratic majority in the House, how it's going to affect, uh, you know, vulnerable members. Bottom line is this. She's sensitive to the fact that she's got 41 Democrats who are in districts that flipped from Republicans. She's got 33 Democrats in districts that Donald Trump won impeachment right now isn't isn't playing favorably in those districts she's going to wait until there is more consensus maybe solidified public opinion on impeachment in those districts uh and then if she's satisfied on that she'll move to other criteria uh and lead her caucus and if that doesn't come together there then i think you're going to see a continuation of this kind of inquiry it's kind of an impeachment uh inquiry but not formally impeachment she's going to let her members message the issue of impeachment however they want and give them as much tactical uh, and strategic flexibility uh, as they need to resonate in their individual districts. And how do you see this uh, presidential race unfolding now? We've been through two debates. We we seem to have a top tier forming here. What do you see happening here? Look, I think it's in a state of suspended animation. You know, you've got these debates, lots of drama. Uh, within the debates, but the field looks stable. I agree with you completely. The top five continues to be the top five. Uh, just saw a Quinnipiac poll uh, on August 6th that Biden still has 32% and Warren 21%, Harris 7 Sanders 14 Buttigieg 5 and then 14 Democrats less than one. I think the next round of this presidential race will actually be among those 14 Democrats uh, jockeying to get on stage uh, in uh, Houston in September. So let's talk about Biden uh, as a as a candidate. Um, and Mike, I'm sorry, you, you may want to jump in here, but I just want to, you know, his message is uh, very much aimed at unity. This whole horrific uh, set of events this weekend has uh, has given him, uh, I think, more more reason to speak to this, which he is doing. Um, the the question, the concern is just about age and stamina. Uh, does that does that concern you? Um, look, I I uh, first of all, of the three people on this conversation, uh, only one has never advised a presidential candidate. So don't take my word for it. You guys know more than I do. Um, you know, having said that, I I do conform to the conventional wisdom that there are seven, eight battleground states, and within those states, maybe 20 to 30 swing counties. Uh, and if you're a Democrat and you uh, are going to be elected president, you've got to win Erie County, Pennsylvania, Luzerne, mm-hmm. Lackawanna. You've got to win you know, those, those unique counties. Uh, and that Joe Biden, I haven't endorsed uh, anybody, but as a political observer, uh, I think Joe Biden you know, has more appeal in those crossover counties right now. But if he continues to feed a narrative uh, that, uh, you know, he's not up to debates uh, and showing strength and vigor, it becomes a much more complicated assessment. 
We should point yeah, he's out going we, through shouldn't, the we shouldn't let him get away with that bullshit about not knowing anything about presidential power. <laughs> this guy knows this guy knows the integral details of every district in this country and, and you and he's and when he speaks about these counties he knows of what he of which he was okay. it, is it what or which, whatever he's speaking. How would you rate the odds of Trump getting reelected as we sit here? You know, I I think it's an uphill battle for him. I don't know of any president uh, who has uh, sustained unfavorables uh, of over fifty percent uh, in recent history uh, who've won. I think, look, this this guy has a path. Uh, his, you know, he's just he's got to figure out how he can win back the electoral states that he won. Uh, and I think a, a Joe Biden at the top of the ticket. I think you know puts Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida more in play. Uh, I think Trump's going to double down on his base, as you said, uh, try and win those states back. I just don't know that by doubling down in the base, David, that that's enough uh, to get him where he wants. He's got to just figure out a way to get more market share among independent and swing voters. And right now, uh, they appear to be leaning against him. To me, man, never shown any interest in doing that. I agree. You know, the problem with Trump is he plays base politics like the generals of Republican primary. He never increases the base. I'll tell you, I think he's on a path to losing with one huge question mark. Are the Democrats going to nominate somebody who makes his base a lot bigger? (laughs) That, to me, is the question. Well, that's exactly right. That's that's what concerns me as well. You're right. All right, brother. We may get back to you sometime uh, soon as this whole thing unfolds. Good to be with you. Steve Israel. Thanks for coming on. So, actually, I think Steve really nailed it with a pretty good analysis of where we are, and there are a lot of unknowns. You know, we had the big debate. We have the Quinnipiniac poll back showing pretty much the consensus. Now, some would say these polls measure a lot of the press after the debate more than the debate, but it was clear Kamala Harris didn't move forward, uh, Bernie didn't move forward, but Elizabeth Warren up past that 20% mark, and that that's what winning a debate looks like in a national poll. Yeah, there are a couple of polls out uh the 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 consensus between them is Biden continues uh, steady at uh, you know in the low 30s. Uh, Elizabeth Warren has moved up, uh, and Kamala Harris has moved down. Uh, the the stunning thing about the Quinnipiac poll was that she uh, had been after the first debate up around 20. Here she's down at seven. The poll also asked about the debate, and 47 percent felt she had won the first debate, uh, only 7% uh, this time. In fact, uh, 9% believed that she had done the worst job uh, in the debate. That is uh, that is a big, big uh, setback yep. for her. It doesn't mean she's out of it by any stretch of the imagination, but we said last week that she had a bad night. I think this is evidence of that. And the durability of Biden is, is interesting. Um, you know, his, his his performance I thought was, was, uh, you know, good enough. Um, but the people who are with him are sticking with him at least for now. There seems to be a real reservoir of goodwill for Biden. And it gets back to what you were saying earlier. He is in many ways, the anti-Trump in terms of knowing what the tone of a president ought to be. Because, you know, he served as VP. He's been in D.C. a long time. He does know what to do to be the anti-Trump in tone. And so 
you know, there's there's some resilience. There's some there's some strength to his numbers, and he may just hang on to that third all the way, which will give him a playing card. The question is, can he do well enough in those early primaries, particularly the caucus in the New Hampshire primary, to not get the patina of being a loser? And, you know, that's the battle now about to be fought as we go through the summer into the caucus. Yeah, because the largest component of his support or the most robust support comes from African-Americans. Uh, and there are very few in those early primary states. He also has so, uh, you know, strong support among working-class whites. Um, but um, anyone who thought that he was going to fade away, I think, looks at these numbers and says, you know, he, uh, he, he, could, uh, he could navigate his way through this so long as he shows, uh, as Steve was saying, the, the wherewithal uh, to serve and, and doesn't appear as if his best days are behind him. Oh, well, the other campaign quickly that I think should have a, have a meeting is Mayor Pete. They're not losing, but they're not winning. You know, he came up with a big kind of buzz wave. He did very well out of the box. And now he's kind of stuck in neutral. And I think they may need to shift gears, a little sharper focus on some stuff. Of course, he's got the early state strategy where he's doing pretty well. But, you know, he's he's becoming, it's like the top three and two halves now with him and Kamala. And I think I think they need to change it up a little. Well, Pete has to choose a lane. He doesn't, he hasn't. Yeah. Uh, he hasn't pushed off on anyone. He he has different positions than Elizabeth Warren. He stood uh, by her in the debate, and Bernie never chose to interact with them. Treated it like a town hall meeting with nine people standing around him. And uh, he's going to have to he's going to have to be more interactive and draw some contrasts if he's going to go anywhere in this debate. We ought to go on to the mailbag here because uh, we got a ton of great questions, and uh, we ought to answer some of them. And if you have a mailbag question, I'll do the commercial now. Just send them to us at hacksontap at gmail.com. That's hacksontap at gmail.com. Okay, what's our first question? Lisa says, and I think this is directed at you, Mike Murphy, given the number of Republican Uh elective office holders who have opted not to run for re-election and like Representative Will Hurd, have cited dismay with Trump. How probable is it that Hurd and others will attempt to form a conservative third party before the 2024 elections? Uh, extremely unlikely. I mean, it is true if, to use a dated reference for some of our uh, older pop culturally aware listeners, if Trump were the amazing Kreskin and could allegedly read minds and he walked through the Republican conference, he'd get the shakes. They, behind the scenes, particularly in the Senate, but also in big swatches of the House, have a lot of contempt for him, particularly the uh, some of the members who've been there a while or some of the young kind of reform conservatives like Will Hurd. I had a good phone conversation with my old friend Mark Sanford the other day about all this, what it's like in the caucus. And it, it is true. And a lot of them are saying, oh, enough. And they're thrown in the towel, which again, weakens our political hand. But, but, but I can't to, blame them. But to Lisa's point, I think that they're waiting out the storm here. They oh, know totally. that one way or another, Trump will be gone. It'll either be in 2020 or 2024. And they're, they're looking to rebuild uh, after after he's gone. I don't think the notion that they're going to start a separate party is nearly as likely as that they're going to fight it out after he's gone and try and reclaim uh, the Republican Party uh, from uh, from the, the Trumpists. 
Yeah, I agree with that. And, you know, the older guys don't like being in the minority. They've been chairman, and it's just not worth the war. And the younger guys are waiting for the rubble to try to rebuild and play in the long game. I totally agree. This is a great one from Jeremy, and I got this in the airport the other day. Jeremy wants to know how you feel about the character actor portraying you on the Showtime series about Roger Ailes' The Loudest Voice. Frankly, I was a little disappointed, Jeremy. I was I was rooting for... Um George Clooney, Brad Pitt, someone who looked and um, sounded more like me. Um, and somehow they got a, a swarthy guy with a mustache who looked like a marginally a sleazy political consultant. And it just so didn't match my self-image. <laughs> but, uh, but, and some of the conversation was somewhat familiar. I did have some meetings with Roger Ailes. Francine asked uh, how... Uh, how uh, accurate the portrayal of Ailes and my conversations with him were. We did have some heated conversations uh, during the Obama years about how Fox was uh, treating him. I, I, uh, I knew Roger Ailes for 30 years uh, because he was, uh, on an oppo- he was an opposing consultant uh, in one of the campaigns in which I was working. So we talked like a couple of guys who had been on the battlefield before, and I was pretty blunt with him, and he was pretty blunt. Uh, with me. Uh, in terms of the portrayal of him, uh, you would know Mike better. You know Roger. Or you knew Roger. Yeah, I, uh, and I agree with you. They needed a taller actor. I don't know if they could have afforded Brad Pitt, but uh, and he probably wouldn't have taken a pay cut for the honor of playing you. But uh, I, I watch it. I know you. It, it, it didn't really ring. And I knew Roger. Roger gave uh, me and Alex Castellanos an early break in 88 when he put us on the Bush presidential team. Um, I, I remember this memorable uh, night driving around New York with him in a white limousine when he was trying to sell me what was left of his political consulting practice because he was going into television. And Larry McCarthy, who was Roger's right hand for years, we saw each other recently and talked about the movie. And we were both, and Larry really knew him. Neither of us really liked a portrayal. Uh, and putting aside all the alleged sins of Roger later, which seemed like pretty credible. I, I never saw any of that pervy stuff when I was around him in the 80s and mid-90s. Um, and you remember, he came across as a fast-talking, snappy, very funny producer, um, kind mm-hmm. of old school. And so the glowering Russell Crowe performance, while a powerful performance, doesn't ring the bell to me as the Ailes I knew, who was kind of snappy, eyes darting, a little bit of a mischievous grin, not the kind of satanic figure of overwhelming evil. Now, that said, I spent oh, I don't know, from mid-2005 on, more or less hiding from Roger, who would summon me to go see him at Fox. And I knew I would probably, if I showed up, have one, an enjoyable conversation about politics, which I also had. He was a great consultant. But I'd also get the offer, you can't refuse from the Godfather, come on over to Fox, which I didn't want to do. But I hated the idea to say no to Roger, who'd given me some breaks uh, early in my career. So anyway, I'm conflicted by it. I I frankly think a more complicated, grayer portrayal of a complicated guy would have would have served the project better. Here's a good one from Patrick. Given the fact that everyone, i.e. you guys, got 2016 completely wrong, all right, thank you, Patrick, isn't there a chance you are mistaken about how supposedly unpopular the single-payer issue will be for Elizabeth Warren in the swing states? What do you think, Axe? You know, uh, there's. Uh, I am chastened by Patrick's admonition about 2016, but um, I'd say two, a few things about this. One is, I mean, there, the research is pretty persuasive here that people do do not 
respond well to the notion. They like the idea of being able to buy into Medicare. They don't like the idea of eliminating private insurance. And I, I think that it, it is a potential vulnerability. But I think the whole Democratic Party is kind of missing the boat because everything I see and everything I hear when I talk to like civilians is that the real issue is the cost of health care. And you know, they're not doing a good enough job of linking these issues and talking about this as a way of reducing health care costs. And, um, you know, I, I feel like we're off on a kind of tangent here that isn't really speaking to the reality of people's lives in the way uh, it should. Elizabeth Warren has used it as a way to flay the insurance companies. And uh, that's central to her theme, but I don't know that it's central to the concerns of people who are trying to pay their health care bills. Yeah, you know, when people complain about the high cost of gas, you don't necessarily want to try to ask them how to build a complicated refinery. Uh, Democrats come up to me all the time in L.A. where I live and say, who are you for? You hate Trump. Who are you for? And I say, I don't know, but my advice, don't take risk. Get the risk out of it. Let the country fire Trump. And it strikes me single payer is risky. All right, last call, Murphy. What What's on your mind here? You know, this is hack wonkery, but that's why we're here. I'm amused, and this is my conservative colors showing, by the financial engineering behind this requirement to be in the next debate. The DNC stipulated candidates have to get 130,000 unique small donors. Now, I get the idea behind it, but the practical effect, like many complicated schemes, is if you're a mid-tier or below candidate, you are literally raising money from $2,800 fat cat donors to be able to afford the digital and direct mail programs that chase $2 donors. You're paying 10 bucks to raise $2 to get to the threshold. If you're Tom Steyer, you're probably paying 100 bucks. So hold out if you're thinking of giving to him uh, in fundraising costs to raise that one or two to get toward 130. It seems like a pretty silly system with a lot of unintended consequences where candidates, and Michael Bennett alluded to this in our interview, are spending more money chasing donors to work that number than they are talking to actual voters about what they're for. Probably true, but in my view, anything that cuts down the field from 25 to a manageable number is a public service. So uh, (laughs) I'm not going to complain about that. What I will complain about is uh, the fact that, and predictably so, uh, that the president and defenders of the president have latched onto this Dayton shooter uh, because of vague intimations that he may have trafficked on some left-wing sites and they're trying to draw some equivalence between them, uh, between these shootings, to, to take pressure off the president for using the very language that the shooter in, uh, in El Paso used, uh, you know, who, who was clearly a white supremacist. And it is offensive, frankly. First of all, the guy in Dayton appears to be someone who really was troubled. I don't like this invocation of mental illness uh, as an excuse for uh, people like the guy down in El Paso. But um, there, there was something going on with this guy in Dayton that goes way back and people recognized it that didn't seem at all political. Um, and so it's, it's offensive and it is a way of shirking responsibility. And it would be great if the president just took responsibility and gave some thought to the words that he uses. Uh, and um, what, how likely is that, Murphy? 
I think it's pretty unlikely. But I agree, it's the worst in politics when we go to the tribal stuff on something like this. It's pretty simple. We need to surround it on every aspect, and it shouldn't be so easy to legally. And I say this as a gun guy who grew up in Michigan hunting, but I never had anything with four legs ever return fire. I never needed a 30-round banana clip and an assault weapon. So we ought to get to the big grown problems because people are dying. So quickly, we'll wrap up with our plug for ourselves. If you like the podcast, or if you don't like it, rate us on iTunes or the podcast platform of your choice. Write down a few words, uh, it made me sick, or better jokes next time, or anything you want, because we read all that, it's helpful, and most of all, it tells the Apple algorithm to share our podcast with more people who may not have heard about it, so we can spread the word. And we really appreciate your listening, and you're doing that to help us out. And don't encourage, don't, don't encourage Murphy on the cornball jokes. That's the only thing that I request. <laughs> it's true. It's dangerous. Well, we'll be back next week. I'll see you, pal, hopefully under happy circumstances after what's been a tough couple of days for our country. Yeah, amen. Talk to you later. Bye.